Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'll be reading chapter 32, verse 48, through chapter 33, verse 29. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Arabim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, at the waters of Meribachadish, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him in to his people. With your hands contend for him, and be a help against his adversaries. And of Levi he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance, and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed by the Lord be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. May these rest upon the head of Joseph on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. And of Zebulun he said, 
Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call peoples to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people. With Israel he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. And of Dan he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. And of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. And of Asher he said, Most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars and your iron and bronze and as your days, so shall your strength be. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. This is the word of the Lord. It's weird not seeing John with a guitar up here, you know. (laughs) I was kind of worried for John that he was going to receive some bribes to read an additional 12 verses in Deuteronomy and end this series early. (laughs) But you made it. If you have not already, please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. You know, in these opening verses, uh, or opening verses of the passage we're studying, in the closing verses of chapter 32, this is in part the last story, the last episode that we have in Deuteronomy. Um, it's the story of Moses, who is a very, who's very familiar with mountains. If you guys know anything about Moses, this guy is a mountaineer. He's always on mountains. He's going up mountains, he's going down mountains, and here we are, the mountain man, about to go up. Another mountain. We've, we see him in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here in this mount, he's going up for the last time. Going the last time to pass. As Christopher Wright says in light of this passage and the whole book of Deuteronomy, the speeches have been made. The sermon has been preached. The song has been sung. All that remains is for Moses to bid farewell and leave the stage. The Lord calls this faithful leader to leave the stage, but more than this, it's a sad moment 
at the close of the book. Rather than this being a party and a celebration and an entrance into the promised land, it is God at the end of Moses' life telling him he's not going into the promised land because he failed to place faith in God and he failed to represent God before the people. So there's two responses that we should feel in our hearts at the close of this book. And this is the feeling that we should have about the book of Deuteronomy, in a sense. You should feel sad for Moses. This is a man who led faithfully, yet he failed, perfectly representing Israel in this book. God's beloved people, yet unfaithful. But at the same time, you should also have another feeling, which is a happiness. The other side of the coin, we should be envious of Moses because God greets Moses like a friend on this mountain is tender-hearted towards him, cares for him like a father. You see the proximity of relationship in this short little episode in part. And we see how God's gracious to Moses later in the New Testament at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's barred in Deuteronomy from going into the Promised Land, but in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we find him there in the presence of the Lord, Jesus Christ, in the Promised Land. And so, sad, but also rejoicing. It's kind of a mixed feeling. So, at this point in the book, Moses goes up to the mountain never to return, and Israel's losing its only and greatest leader. You know, Joshua is great, but it's kind of like giving up the best football team in America for the Philadelphia Eagles. It just doesn't compare. And yet, in the passage before us in many ways, it's a plot twist for the readers, for the readers' expected ending. What you would expect this book to end like, it's, rather than a, no, no, seriously, don't stop sinning. You cut it out. You see, I just got barred from the promised land. Straighten up. Instead of that, Moses blesses Israel. Like, if you're the reader and you're thinking about all these curses and, and all this future unfaithfulness, what do you think the last word of the book of Deuteronomy should be? Not blessing. I don't deserve that. Moses didn't deserve that. And yet, it is. And Moses does the most pastor-like thing to date in this book. God tells him, go up to that mountain, leave the people, and die. You sung the song, you preached the sermon, go, go up there and die. And Moses says, that's great. Give me the microphone one more time. I want to give a poem. And that's what he does. He gives a poem to Israel. For, for all of us this morning, we need this text because there's many times in which we would find ourselves in similar positions to Israel that, that we would, like the dark cloud Israel had, knowing her past, her present, and future unfaithfulness, knowing the battles to come in Canaan, knowing that there was some change management underway, many real things pulling off their gaze from God. We too, think about your life, how often it is and how easy it is to complain and to gripe and to grumble and to focus on things other than the Lord. Oh, you know, I... I, I I, I lost that client, or oh, I lost a family member. Oh, great, I just got the, that prognosis from, from the doctor. It looks like the cancer's back. So many things that tempt us to turn and to wait more 
than the gospel that we have, the precious possession of Jesus Christ. We often are more aware of the market decline, whether physical or spiritual decline, around us than the sanctifying and preserving work of God within us. I'm there. We can be more aware of the sin that has been committed, that we've committed, than the grace that God has laid before us in Jesus Christ. We can be more aware of what others have done to us and what has happened against us than how God is eternally for us in Christ because of his special electing love for us and that that love will never let us go because it's based on his everlasting arms upholding us. Maybe another way of saying this is through a question. Is our salvation in the gospel weighty enough to overcome the weightiness of our sin, the sin of others, and suffering? Is the gospel really that weighty? Is it really that good of news? Are we merely holding out for a losing candidate and stubbornly closing our eyes to greater powers in created order? Is what Moses describing here wishful thinking? Or can we each describe our lives in Christ as true blessing? That's the question. Can you? Can you? Could you today in good con not just not in Christianese, oh, everything's great. But can you authentically in your soul say, regardless of what I'm weathering in this moment, I am blessed in Christ? That's what Moses is getting at in this blessing. Can we say that we are blessed here today? Christopher Wright again helps us in summarizing this passage in light of Deuteronomy by saying this, there is something beautiful in the fact that after all the dark chapters of curses, challenge, warning, melancholic prediction, these last words are so rich in warmth, hope, and comfort. More than beautiful, it is the abiding theological truth of Deuteronomy. This monumental exposition of covenantal realities, that cannot be overstated that its final words acclaim the God who eternally loves God's people and a people eternally saved by their God. The blessing that Moses is describing in this text is the blessing of salvation. There's no other blessing. There's no other blessing worth considering I'm not going to waste my time talking about other blessings other than the blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ. Why is this blessing weightier than sin and suffering? Is this blessing a temporary thing until we muck it up? Here's the good news from this morning's passage. The blessing of salvation is grounded in God's sovereign grace towards his people and his sovereign possession of his people. We're going to see this in two points. Two points. I was saving a third one for if we, John, read extra verses. The content of our blessing and the context of our blessing. The content and the context. All right, so let us look first at the content of our blessing. Why is this about blessing? Look at verse 1 of chapter 33. This is the blessing 
with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. This repetition, it, don't, don't look at the subheadings, that's not inspired, look at the verse. How do we know this is meant to be about blessing? Because there is, there is a repetition of words here. Blessing, blessing, and, 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 that's what I'm talking about. This isn't, stop, sit, this is, there, I have good news for you in this passage. This blessing that Moses gives is a poem. I love this poem. It's two stanzas. It's in chapter 33, two parts. There's stanza one and there's stanza two. And the way that it's broken up is the first couple of verses is stanza one. And then he sandwiches in between stanza one and stanza two, these blessings to Israel. And then he concludes the chapter with the second stanza. All right, so poem and then he starts sending out little love notes to the tribes of Israel, and then he comes back to it. He comes back to it. And so that's, that's how this is going, going to look. But what, what is the content? What is the content of this blessing? Is this, hey, listen, you're never going to get sick. Hey, listen, if you just name it and claim it, you're going to get a great paycheck. Everyone's going to love you. It's going to be awesome. You'll never struggle with sin anymore. Woo! It's going to be great. This is what I promise you. I know we said a lot of things in Deuteronomy, but, but hear me out on this. What is the content of blessing? If someone asked you, hey, how are you doing today? And you said, I am blessed. And they said, what does that mean? What would you say is the content of that? What is the content of blessing? Because this is a word the world uses. This is a word your neighbor uses. This is a word each one of us is familiar with. And he who defines the words wins the argument in a sense. And we have to use the words as God uses them. What does it mean to be truly blessed? Look at verse 2 through 5. This is what it means to be true. This is the content of blessing. God above all else. God is the content and it's God above all else. It is God above all else. It is God that is the content of our blessing. Verse 2 through 5, the first stanza of this poem. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us and he shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. And so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. And when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. These verses, Kingsway, are recounting the Sinai episode of, of when God came to the mountain, descended upon the mountain, and Moses the mountain man climbs up the mountain, and God descends upon the mountain. He appeared. He visited his people. These verses make a point in describing God initiating this meeting. They didn't just, in the wilderness, hey, there's a, there's a good mountain. Oh my goodness, the Lord is upon it. 
No, God directed and led. And God came from heaven to his people. There's no mistake from these verses that it is God who moved. It's not stative. Notice the, the first part. In, 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 in verses 2 and 3, it's active. There's, we're doing things. And then the last part, it, it's, we're just talking about it. It, it, is a, it is a holistic event that happens with ongoing effect. God's doing something. And you can see that from the repetition of from. The Lord came from. He dawned from. He shone forth from. He came from. Verse 2 and 3 describes God acting and coming to Israel and Israel responding in action. Israel followed in your steps. Verses 4 and 5 lay before us the more state of action. In light of God's coming, in light of God giving the law, God became king. He became king. When God gave his law, the song of Moses described providing and protecting. That's what kings do. The other thing that kings do is they give laws. Provides, protects. He gives his law. And when he does that, he became king. King. And Israel in this moment, what's the action? What's the state of action? Scattered to gathered. They became a people. You can't not think of 1 Peter, that we were once not a people, but now we are. Why? Did we just get together, decide to do our own thing? God the King, the Lord of life, came from and gathered and became king over a people. So God became king And when God came, when he gave us the law, he became king and we became a people. What does that sound like to you? A blessing. That's what it sounds like. That sounds like blessedness. Where we once had no borders. We once were not provided for. We once were not protected. We once didn't know what direction and guidance to go. But God in love comes, provides, protects, guides, and rules over a people And we'll get to why. If you feel lost this morning, that, that's good news enough right there. The grace of God that you once were far off and lost, and he gathered you in love. But what's the contents of that blessing? When Moses goes up to Sinai, was it Skittles that came down from heaven? M&M's. Peanut butter M&M's. It was the Lord God. That's the content. That is the content of the blessing, the content of the gospel, the content of our blessed salvation as the people of God is God himself. But let's go a little bit further, shall we? Let's jump to the second stanza, the second part of the poem. So verse 26 and 27 of chapter 33 what Chris led us in the call to worship this morning. There is none like God, O Jeshurun. Jeshurun's just a, it's an affectionate title for Israel, whether it be the people or the land, all right? So if you're wondering, like, what is Jeshurun? That's Israel, just Israel, the people of God. There's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies and his majesty. The eternal God 
is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrusts out the enemy before you and said, destroy. When, 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 when it describes there's none like God, I think we can be tempted to think about like power or like an item. Like, like oh, the, the president of the United States, not like God. There's no government like God. There's no army like God. I want to challenge. Think about affection. Think about the object of your affection. There is none that compare to God being the apple of your eye. There's nothing, no hope of your heart that you can set it upon that compares to the Lord. There's no hope riding through the heavens to your help like the Lord. Your job and everybody thinking you're awesome isn't going to ride to your help when trouble comes. It's not going to provide for you or protect you or help guide you. Being cleared of chronic pain or an addiction or you name it. Any way that you see your life fraying. If that was gone, that thing that you want removed, that there's nothing like get this out of the way and look to the Lord. There's nothing like that. That's the Lord is to be more treasured than whatever this is for you this morning. Because it is only the Lord God that can ride from the heavens to save you, to thrust your enemies out, and where he can say authoritatively, destroy. I think that's so cool. This is a declaration of praise, and it's a condemnation against idols. But secondly, I want you to look at verse 27. If there's a verse, if you're looking for like Bible memory this year, This is the verse to memorize. This is the verse to treasure. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Where was Israel about to go? They were going to the promised land. They're going to land, to dwell, to a place that they've been dreaming of. And what does God say here? He says, the eternal God is your dwelling place reminding them, for them it was the promised land right in front of them. Oh, once we get that, no more manna. I get to eat milk and honey, which is not a great diet, but at least it's not manna. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and that is the same as it's always been for Israel. He's just reminding them of what he's always done for them. He preserved them in Egypt. They were a preserved people, not because they were in a world power, even though enslaved. It was God that was their dwelling place. Not Goshen. It was God. They were preserved in the wilderness, not because of the brilliance of a nomadic people, but because God was their dwelling place. And now it's the promised land. And Moses is reminding them, God is the dwelling place for the people of God. Kingsway. This building is not the dwelling place of Kingsway. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are safe and secure, not because of things I can touch or think about. It is by the sovereign grace of God that I dwell in safety. The contents of blessing is 
God himself. To a people that are unfaithful, God is eternally faithful from generation to generation to generation because he is the eternal God. Underneath this people, underneath this dwelling place, so imagine this, okay? Okay, let's do this pulpit. You, God is your dwelling place. You're on this. And the next verse is underneath are the everlasting arms of God. So it's not by Israel's merit that they're saved. It's by sovereign grace of God. And, and the thing is, is that God's, God's people do not have to, to work to stay on, on, the, on the dwelling, which is how we often think about it. Woo, I'm on it. I'm in the dwelling place of God, but then, oh man, I sinned. Okay, well, one week of quiet time, a little bit of prayer, and then I'm back up here and I'm set. Oh, and then I said something mean to my wife. All right, okay, now, but I'm going to sing a song. I'm going to raise my hand when Matthew leads. And then I'm back. I'm back. The second part of the verse is telling you the Lord, his everlasting arms are upholding you. He's upholding you. That's the good news this morning for you, weak and frail, that the love of God is good news, and we, it, it, it's almost too good to describe and to understand completely. The Lord is our dwelling place, and underneath he holds us. It's not up to us. It's in a different market altogether. Regardless of what we do, it goes up and down. God is consistently the same. We are tethered to him by grace and grace alone. So maybe you think you're saved by, you know... Um, you're saved, but because you struck out, God doesn't, he's, you're not his favorite. This verse obliterates that thought. Because God didn't think you were awesome to begin with in one sense. He loves you with an eternal love. But it wasn't your merits that wooed him to you. It's not like when you sin, you get into timeouts before God starts showering you with his blessing. What Deuteronomy, verse 26 and 27, teaches us that it is by grace you have been saved. Look at verse 29 with me. Look at verse 29. I, I love this. All right, so the second. Happy are you, blessed are you, Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the law? A people saved by works. A people saved by the Lord. Saved by the Lord. Remind that when the enemy comes to your conscience. And to your soul late at night and says, you're not loved by God. You throw that dish right back at Satan's face. And you say, look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, I have been saved. Let me say this again. That's Deuteronomy chapter 33. All right, I'm, not, I'm not quoting Romans here. I'm not, I'm not quoting Philippians or Colossians or Ephesians. I'm quoting the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus Christ. It is by God's grace that you are saved. If you believe the Old Testament is law and that the New Testament is grace, you are not reading your Bible. I hate to be so blunt, but when you read that, I don't know how you get, well, I've got to do something to, to be saved. God is your dwelling place. His everlasting arms are upholding you, and you are saved by the Lord. That's why you're happy and blessed. If it was, hey, here's the ticket, don't lose it, and then the wind carries it away. If that's how we viewed it, is that you're in, 
and it's just smoke and mirrors and you're off the stage the, next, the minute that you fail, that's no gospel. That's no good news because we all know how short we can fall. So this eternal God is the contents of divine blessing and is to, it's to be blessed is to know him. Moses reminds the Israelites as they go into the promised land that there's nothing more important than seeing the Lord for who he is and knowing him as their salvation. Christian, that's the same message that we need to hear this morning. There is nothing more important in this moment than seeing the face of God in Christ and to know him as your salvation. Israel had a lot of reason. Remember, there's a lot of gravity pulling them over here to complain, to think it's woe is me. And we need the same call from Moses. Look at the truth. Look at the grace of God. Paul says this, and this is the other thing. We need to value, and I'm not saying suffering doesn't happen. Cancer happens. People die. You lose your job. Your marriage is going to be tough. But are you treasuring the Lord Jesus above all else? Can you say, this is true. I am suffering, but Jesus is better. Can you say that? Paul says it, Philippians chapter 3, but whatever I gain, I counted as loss. Not because it was actual loss, although he incurred much loss, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. That word everything means everything. As loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I think he might be alluding to Deuteronomy here that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, the righteousness from God, not from Caleb, not from you, from your neighbor comes from God that depends on faith. Do you treasure Christ in such a way this morning that you can count all other things as rubbish? I'm not telling you that these don't exist. I'm not telling you that there's not suffering on the table. I'm not telling you to grin and bear it or close your eyes. But can you say that Christ is better? And if not, I don't want you to get on the treadmill and start working. I want you to remember where you are and who holds you. So having thoroughly covered how God is the substance, let's move on to the context, all right? There's a second part that's important to grasp. Here's, here's the question that I was, as I was reading this, I was like, okay, so what, why does God love a people who is unlovely? And why does he hold them with his everlasting arms? Why does he put up with their shortcomings? Like, that's a, that's a lot. Why does God show them grace? The answer is simple. It's humbling. And it's incredibly profound. God's electing love for you. The Lord came from Sinai. And he dawned from Seir, and he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the ten thousands of holy ones because he loved Israel. 
He loved Israel. Verse 3. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hands. Not because of works. Not because Israel was the first one to fill out the survey of, hey, I'm trying to save a people. Whoever fills it out first wins salvation in the everlasting arms. God set his affection according to his sovereign free will upon a people. He loves them because he loves them. So to be blessed is to not only have God, but to know that God has chosen you out of an electing love for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Very little part of verse 4. In love. In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Predestination is not a robotic doctrine, but it is rooted and saturated in the character of God. And what I love about this verse is that he predestined us not according to our choice of him, not because of our position in life, where we were born or how good we are as a person, What does the verse say, Bible-believing Christian? This is God's Word. We believe it. Inspired for our good. What does He teach us about predestination? In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That's why. That's why. In love. And according to his will. Blessing is a God-initiated thing. God is the contents of it. God's electing love. His special eye for you is the root of it. Predestination and election are not just theological doctrines for the academics. It's for the church pew. It's for you, Christian. When Moses talks about election or Paul talks about election, it's always in the context of comforting the believer in their salvation. Your election is not a loaded gun to blast others in argument. It is a balm to your soul when you feel most far from God. It is a humbling comfort that you are in a happy state, Kingsway, because of God's work and not your own. So again, to the frail and the weak this morning, I'm talking to you. You're tired. Can't even get out of the chair, spiritually speaking. You, 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 it's, it's hard to breathe the air in this room, maybe. To you, God's electing love is a comfort. It is a comfort to you because you have God. You're here. You're here. He's holding you here, not because, again, it's some kind of trick, but because he wants you on here. He loves you on here. He delights in you being there. And it is, again, as as king to provide, to protect to guide, he does that because he loves you. It's blessing. You want to talk about blessing in a New Testament context, go just a verse before, two verses before in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's blessing. That's not just like a general thing. Paul takes that. Here's the outline for most of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father, he is blessed, and he blesses us. And then, in a very structured way, 
Paul gives us the blessings that we have in a, in a Trinitarian outline. Blessings from the Father, blessings from the Son, blessings from the Holy Spirit. All of that is the spiritual blessings. That's the blessing. Paul defines the blessing in verse 3 with most of the chapter. And part of that chapter is your election in Christ. You don't feel blessed? Read Ephesians 1. And see how blessed you are by the blessed God in the salvation that he upholds you in. What makes this passage so powerful in light of the context, in the light of the shortcomings of Israel, is that in light of our shortcomings, God says, mine. Israel, mine. I love you. And yet, when you read the blessings, you read the blessings of the various tribes in the text, he doesn't just use some like template, uh, we all get junk mail. Hi, Caleb. Hi, Caleb. We are so very interested to buy your Honda Accord for this much money. Like, it's, it, it's not a template blessing of each of these tribes. Hi, Judah. Happy birthday. Hi, Levi. Happy birthday. It's not that. It's, it's personalized. It's individualized. When he, talks to, when he talks to Levi and blesses Levi, what is he talking about? He's, talk, he's talking about the priestly duty. And apparently, Gad's ripping people apart, and God blesses them in that. You talk to Judah, you hear other things. Wives, if you want to compliment your husband in casual conversation, use, use the blessing of Dan. Oh, Caleb, he's such a lion's club that <laughs> leaps from Bashan. I don't even know what that means. God blesses individuals in the corporate. His blessing is to Israel, made up of individuals. And again, to drive the point of election, because it's a comfort. Because again, if you are weary of soul, you are going to, I know it, because I do it, you're going to push yourself off this mat as far as you can. I'm not close to God. We find in this text, over and over and over again, you are exactly in the dead center of God's special eye for you. You are in a blessed state because you have God and he sees you and he's not writing happy birthday blank. He is writing to you an individually cared for blessing in Christ. You are his child. But this happens in the context, the second, the second context. It's an electing love within covenant relationship. Covenant relationship. God initiates, he sets his love, he gives us himself, and we give ourselves to God. We give ourselves to God. Covenant relationship is best defined by the phrase, he is our God and we are his people. We are set apart. What makes us blessed is that we have been set apart from all people in the world and gathered to God by sovereign grace alone, not by works, but by God's grace. And the exclusive relationship that we have with God is not based on the merit, 
that we have, and it's never to be overthrown by any enemies and created order, because this relationship is bound together, upheld, and eternally preserved through the mighty hand of God and God alone. What makes us uniquely blessed, if someone says, what does it mean that you are blessed? You're a Christian. What does it mean? It means that God has set me apart from ruin to a blessed inheritance in Christ. That I was not a people and I was lost and God in love dragged me from my sin and said Caleb and said your name because he chose you in love for his glory, placed you in his dwelling place and upholds you for all of time. Look at verse 28. I love this. So, so again, Chris, Chris mentioned verse 26. None is like God. But notice the contrast in verse 28, 29, excuse me. Happy are you, blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you. You see that flip? Who's like God? Israel. Who's like you? Why is Israel unlike others? Because they have been called out from the world, set apart The second part of this verse, a people saved by the Lord. God's covenant people are unique. God's covenant people are blessed. The church is doing great. They are blessed because God has set them apart. And so the content, context of the blessing is special love within covenant relationship. But there's one last question we have to ask and quickly do so. Why? We've asked why, but how? Why would God do this? Because he loves us. But how does he do this? Because all of our theology one-on-one students go, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's perfect. And we just talked about how we're not. How do you, I'm not great at math, but two plus two still equals four. How does an all-sufficient, perfect, and holy God who is perfectly good and righteous Bear to love those whom he should condemn. That that is the the greatest mystery that God graciously gives us an answer to in his word. There's been testimony after testimony in the book of Deuteronomy how God has declared to be the provision for everything that he requires. But the final context of this blessing, election, covenant, relationship, The third one is that it's a righteousness apart from ourselves. It is a righteousness that is not based off of us. We're not going to fall off the podium to the side. God upholds it. And the only reason why is because it's a a righteousness that's not based on us. The formal way of describing it is an alien righteousness, not like alien UFOs. Like alien is an other, outside righteousness. It has to be from outside of yourself and substituted on your behalf. How God can restore relationship with us. How his love can be lavished upon us. How covenant relationship can be restored with us. Is if God in grace provides us and covers us with a righteousness that we do not have. And he does. Church, he does that. My weak and lowly fellow Christian. He's done that for you. In Jesus Christ. 
and that is good news for this morning. I want you to turn with me to Titus chapter 3. This is how God has done this. Titus 3 verse 4 through 7. But when, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. I want you to think about that in light of God being the content, Him choosing to love you for the purpose of a relationship. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, answering the question, but according to His own mercy, by washing, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, being declared righteous by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul in this passage describes our blessed state in salvation is the not by the work of our hands, brothers and sisters. It's by the work of God. By the work of God. And we see that the Holy Spirit regenerates our dead hearts. We see the love of God being poured out in the work of Jesus Christ. That we are by God's grace justified. Declared righteous before Him by another's righteousness. All of grace. All because of God. Nothing because of you. The everlasting arms died on the cross so that with full eternal surety, they never move. Christ died for your sins. He died so that you would be secure in Him. Those hands have holes in them from the nails that He took because of His love for you. And because of that, you are heirs to true hope, biblical hope, not wishful thinking hope. The enemy would want to tell you that there's no reason for hope today. We're going to close with this. The enemy would want to give you all sorts of reasons why you should be an Eeyore and not a Pooh Bear. That's a live category for young children. Oh, no. Everything's bad. Or are you going to be a Pooh Bear? There's all, all sorts of reasons to be Eeyore. All sorts of reasons. You could, you could write a, a whole journal entry. It takes nothing it takes nothing, Christian, to be an Eeyore. It takes nothing to be a critic. It takes faith to be over here and to hold on to that precious treasure that God's grace holds you for all eternity. A lesser gospel would say you're right. You're right. You should be dismally upset about this. Don't put hope. There's no hope. But that's not the case. We don't have a lesser gospel. We have a full gospel. We have a full gospel in Jesus Christ with a greater gravity than anything that we could encounter. It is well, brothers and sisters, with our soul 
because your soul is saved by God's sovereign grace alone, and your soul is eternally preserved by God's grace alone, and God guides you through this life and sustains you and is your shield and is your sword in the the salvation found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your life is upheld by these everlasting arms. The blessing of salvation is grounded in God's sovereign grace towards his people and his sovereign possession of his people.